Welcome to Rocketman Explores, where we voyage forth and delve into the world of sci-fi. But wait a minute! Ever wondered when the internet is going to get tired of us and just come and kill us all? Well, so have I. But then again, maybe it'll just be happy and send us cats for the rest of our lives. Tune in as we figure out AI. Friend, foe, or disinterested god. Much like cats. Hello, hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everybody in between, and welcome to another episode of Rocketman Explorers. Today, we're going back, we're going back to basics, back old school here with some truly classic science fiction. We're getting into Star Trek The Next Generation, in particular, the Season 2, Episode 9 classic, The Measure of a Man. I hope you all have your drinks ready because we're going to be uh, we're going to be going deep diving on this one. And joining me in discussing it is a gentleman who uh, whose wealth and breadth of uh, Star Trek knowledge vastly eclipses my own. So I'm very lucky to have him. It's uh, Aaron from the Enterprising Individuals podcast. Aaron, how you doing? Great, Connor. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. So um, tell, tell the listeners just uh, a bit about your particular podcast, Enterprising Individuals. I'm, al- I'm still getting over you calling TNG classic and old school. That hurts my well, heart just a little I, bit, but okay, I think that's, that, that's probably true at this point. Well, let me rephrase that slightly in that it means two things. <laughs> Cla- classic in that TNG, uh, I mean, also classic and old school in terms of this podcast, as TNG was the first thing that I ever really discussed. So. Oh, yeah. That's in reference to both podcasts. But yeah, we're also very old. TNG is, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I don't want to describe the original series as the ancient one, but the original <laughs> series is over 50 years old now. So, I mean, definitely, I think late 80s, early 90s can be considered old school at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, now, yeah. yeah what it says about us and our own aging is another story entirely, but there you go. These are some hard realities we have to face. I think if we don't own up to it now, we're just going to look sadder every year that we don't. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Uh, I have a show called Enterprising Individuals, as you mentioned. It's a weekly Star Trek discussion podcast, and on it, I and a guest talk about a selected episode from any of the broadcast Trek series. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we talk about the ins and outs. We talk about you know the datas and the trips and the Cisco's, but we also talk about the uh, social and the scientific and the ethical questions that Trek raises. Uh, that is Trek's raison d'etre, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, certainly that's what Roddenberry initially intended for it. That's what it was for. Certainly. Yeah. To be something that was different than, you know, at the time in the ancient Trek days, uh, all that sci fi was was just, um, you know, robots and monsters and things like that. Danger Will Robinson and Roddenberry had a different vision. He wanted Trek to to explore those ideas, uh, explore a lot of the progressive ideas that were being um, reexamined in the 1960s in the time in which the show was made. Yeah, well, it's almost, I'd say, really bringing it more in line with like literary science fiction always had both uh, televisual science fiction up to that point was, as you say, it was pure escapism really is what it was. Whereas literary science fiction, there was always the escapism, but there was also a lot of social commentary and things like that. I I view it sort of as Roddenberry taking televisual science fiction in a more like literary style to a, to a, to a, to a little bit and then introducing more themes and then just pure escapism. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And to that end, you know, for the first and second season of the show, he 
contacted a lot of sci-fi authors. He had a lot of like real deal yeah. sci-fi authors writing for the show, like Norman Spinrad and Theodore Sturgeon. Yeah, Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think in a lot of ways he succeeded beyond possibly what he was looking to do, because I think that uh, especially Star Trek and just televisual sci-fi in general became the torchbearer for that progressivism. It took uh, sci-fi, not in every case, but the edifice of, I think, literary sci-fi a while to catch up to uh, the progressiveness that Trek had uh, had, had started. Yeah, I, absolutely. In both progressiveness and it really, it took what what was expected from television sci-fi in a completely new direction, which is still held to this day, you know, like probably the most beloved science fiction shows that have come on since then, uh, to me at least, like The Expanse or Battlestar Galactica, the remake of Battlestar Galactica, et cetera, et cetera, are always about social issues and things like that. Like, they, I, I can't think of a pure escapism science fiction show that has as much, I guess, like Stargate and such, Mm -hmm. I would qualify yeah. more as poor. So they still both exist in parallel, but you're right that it took science fiction a long time after that, like literature to catch up to like, they jumped ahead by leaps and bounds. It was impressive how quickly it sort of like sort of surpassed it. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that the structure of Star Trek two, you know, obviously shows had, you know, casts of recurring characters, but having like the captain, having a cast of characters under them, them being on a ship, them going somewhere, doing something was replicated, you know, so often after that, even to this day, just immediately after you've had, you know, Battlestar Galactica and Space 1999, yep. like seven, all these shows that weren't, I don't think they were necessarily imitating Trek, a show that only lasted for three some seasons, but that, that seed was already planted and that, that model was taken and used again and again and again in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, they may not have been imitating, but they couldn't help but be influenced by it. You know, it was uh, yeah. it was unavoidable. Yeah, absolutely. So in a segue, but a very good, like easy segue from there, because because speaking of social issues and such, uh, the episode that we're discussing this time, uh, season two, episode nine, The Measure of a Man, is probably one of the quintessential like social issue episodes in TNG for me at least. And it's a right. very, it's the complete opposite of escapism. The entire thing, basically it's the lead up to a debate and then it's a uh, academic debate. Yes. And that debate then. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And because it's on TV, there's only like, you know, three or four characters in a room at any given time. Normally yeah. this would be the inherit the wind scenario. You know, the end of it would be a huge courtroom and order in the court and, and a, you know, yeah, the, the exactly. gallery. But instead it's just like four people just trying to work out this incredibly important issue that involves not only one person's life, but the lives of all people to come that are like him. Correct. And it's, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe they could have gone and gotten all the extras from like Law and Order or something and just put them in the background. But <laughs> sure. I guess, it, I guess it, didn't, it didn't occur to them at the time. But yeah, because, because we're we're getting into um, there's a couple of things I want to speak about this episode. So we arrive at a star base. I think it's one one seven, which I understand the Federation's naming, like, you know, numerical naming systems for star bases, but Christ, it's boring. Surely they could have come up with some <laughs> kind of better naming system. Like, the, the, the star base is ostensibly to, like, show the Romulans that they're, like, there too. It's almost almost like right. a show the flag star base, and it's star base 117. It's like, okay. 
fine. Yeah, the Romulans are speaking in hushed tones about Starbase. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, better gotten, uh, don't forget to dodge the watchful eyes of Starbase 117. <laughs> da, 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 and it just doesn't have that ring to it. Not quite. Um, but we show up to Starbase 117 to drop off a whole bunch of... It, it, it's a very, like... This episode is a very sort of everything that makes the like even the incidentals the incidental throwaways it's all about like the idea of what tng is supposed to be in terms of it's like they're going there to drop off basically laboratory results and things like that and to like swap out labs for new experiments etc there because the the basic idea of the enterprise is that it's a floating like city slash research lab for a lot of it that's what one of its many perp slash convention center the enterprise is a convention center in space yeah. um it's a but, floating uh, marriott yeah yeah, yeah it's a floating well. marriott with some labs in it <laughs> yes that happens which <laughs> also really happens big to have, guns <laughs> yeah which happens to have well, well we say really big i don't you know there are so many times where the laser i almost wonder why the enterprise is ever equipped with lasers because lasers either instantly destroy what they're shooting at in one shot or do absolutely nothing right yeah there's <laughs> never any in between they you know they're always losing shield percentage but you never hear of the lasers defeat it like slowly whittling down the enemy shields that never seems to happen anyway yeah. <laughs> uh, okay i'm gonna have to keep on track because i have a feeling you and i could digress a lot about things in Star Trek, but, yeah yeah jesus yeah stay on target yeah thank you luke um no actually thank you obi-wan but anyways so and we are introduced hey picard is clearly in- introduced to someone um philippa that he clearly had a relationship that ended extremely badly with um they they but uh, it's impressive how clear they make it that both a they definitely got it on and b it definitely ended extremely and it ended badly and i i'm impressed at how like not dickish i guess but like how sort of yeah, I guess Dickens is almost the way Picard is there with her. He's just like, he's so passive aggressive. It's hilarious. Yeah. Well, you have to remember that she prosecuted the court martial case when he lost the Stargazer. So it was of basically course. her job at that time, yeah, to kick him out of Starfleet. So I don't yeah. know if their relationship had ended before then. It definitely ended at that point. I, I, I get, I get, I think like part of what's making him so pissy and why they're sort of so dancing around each other. I got the suspicion that the relationship ended because of that, that like yeah. th- that just wasn't something that was going to continue afterwards. Yeah. He says, uh, you, you know what I'd like to do? And she says, oh, bust a chair across my teeth. And he's like, well, that, yeah. but then something yeah, else. Yeah, well, that, but no, I meant, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. You almost never see that side of Picard. It's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then we are introduced to a, you know, Starfleet Admiral case numbers, 117, whatever his name is, and a scientist named Bruce Maddox who leads into something and then is like – Super size, I call, but we'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Admiral asks for a tour of the ship. They clearly take a tour of the ship. Uh, they get to the bridge. And Maddox and Data are giving each other eyes. And then the Admiral, again, I don't want to get too far in the rabbit hole with this, but this is just another case of Starfleet Admirals are just just the worst. Starfleet Admirals <laughs> are always the worst. They're always the worst. They're terrible. And 
he clearly knows that what he's about to do is like going to cause problems, which is why he's been dancing around the subject the whole time. He just goes, oh, yeah, by the way, this my boy Bruce is here to uh, take care of your droid and then just runs away. (laughs) Doesn't say anything. He runs off the bridge. He's like, "Okay, my job is done here. Smoke. He if this was like, you know, modern day Internet. Um, world, he would have yelled smoke bomb, thrown one on the ground, and then <laughs> yes. ran away. Yes, right. Because <laughs> yeah. he's still, yeah, man, Starfleet Admirals, full of shit. But anyway, the crux of the matter is this gentleman, Bruce Maddox, wants to disassemble data because he thinks he's progressed far enough in his research to be able to reproduce data, but he needs to disassemble and examine data in order to do that. Right. And you know, I don't think it's quoted the writing or anything like that. But when Maddox first gives gives them his presentation, I have my note right here. Maddox is clearly full of shit. This should have never gotten off the ground. Like he <laughs> just even in his presentation, the guy is just they're like, you know, Data asked a pretty basic question. He's like, so what's how have you solved the idea of like, you know, my positive? I mean, he uses a bunch of techno babble, but his basic idea is how have you solved the idea of like solving my brain? And yeah. Maddox immediately starts looking from side to side and he's like, uh, and it's like, you haven't, you haven't don't, like, don't that's rule one. It. Like, yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Like, <laughs> no, like how did this ever even get this far? This man is so obviously not done everything that he needs to do. Yeah. Yeah. I was well, something that I really like about the character and about the portrayal by uh, actor Brian Brophy is that yeah. he, he rides that line of confidence and complete yeah. insecurity in what he's doing so well. And you get the impression over the course of the episode that this yeah. guy is like, he might, he might be smart. He might be onto something, but he's, he's an artist. He's a bit of a diva yeah. and you, yeah. you can't, he, he knows his vision. You can't tell him what to do. And um, I actually have a, a friend who is um, neuro, divergent um he he is autistic and he says yeah i see a lot of myself in that guy sometimes because i get an idea and i really run with it and i'm not going to necessarily listen to what people are are uh, are telling me about whether i should do something or not yeah 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 i mean it's it is you're right it's a great portrayal because you say he's he there are clearly moments where it's obvious he you know he's not and he's not an idiot he obviously knows what he's talking about but you're right that he's got an idea of what this future of what he's going to do should be and yes. far be it for anyone else to tell him that his idea isn't a hundred percent sound. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's writing that, uh, that I- idealism, that wave of like discovery and science. Uh, and it's just, it's running over and drowning like little people, but he's not too concerned about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, because to him, he's not running over and drowning and well, that's a good people point. at all. That's yeah. the crux of that's sort of the crux of what we're getting at. So he basically tells data hand wave says, I oh, don't worry about it. And data says, well, no. And Picard picks up on it too. Picard's like, dude, based on your like presentation here, you clearly haven't figured out all the kinks. You're not going to do that. And, and then here comes the diva. Matt is like, well, you know, I figured that, uh, that might be the case. Yeah. So, uh, guess what? Your officer's transferred to me now. Boom. Which, yeah. I mean, I guess in a way, so here comes some Starfleet protocol that I'm questioning here, which sure. is okay. So data has received data gets transferred. He has no, like he, he has no input in this, which, okay, fine. Starfleet is 
quasi-military, but they keep sort of making a point of the fact that they're not military. So that in and of itself is sort of interesting that he can just be said, oh, you're transferring. But okay, yeah. fine. But Maddox hasn't produced the person who's supposed to come and replace Data. So like – That's true. You know, he's he's being transferred. An extremely important member of – like the flagship of the fleet is being transferred off and they haven't offered anyone to replace him. That just seems really bizarre. Yeah, I do. It's a little wiggly, the situation at the beginning, I think in order to set up the situation later on in the show, because yeah, I, like they how they, yeah, I like how they explore the idea that his rights and his choices are limited somewhat by the fact that he's part of, you know, the armed forces and he has a, a commission here and he has to follow orders. Uh, but then as soon as that becomes um, obviated by him just quitting and resigning later in the episode, then we get into, well, are you actually owned or not? What really, what I have a question about is, how could a being uh, recognized as an individual or not ascend to the level of lieutenant commander before this ever came up like this is okay. is this the first time this has happened yeah so you and i have very similar questions about okay. that then because right. if, if it gets because they say it's like well then clearly he's not a being it's like well then why did you give him a military rank they yeah. say that you know she says it's like you know well you wouldn't ask that you, you wouldn't let the computer resign yeah but you wouldn't promote the co computer to lieutenant yeah, computer commander wouldn't either, be would lieutenant you? commander yeah, yeah yeah right right like you <laughs> no can't, medals for the computer no that's it you can't it seems so obvious like you can't have it both ways you can't yeah. say he's there but then like then if he truly is property of starfleet and just a machine and a thing you should never have let him join as an officer in the first place because you <laughs> right. wouldn't let another machine join as an officer that should have disqualified him right there in the entrance of the board which it does say in the backstory, it, it, they do throw, have a little throwaway backstory that there was an evaluation program on whether or not Data could become an officer. And Maddox was on that. And he was the only one who said he couldn't for right. that exact reason. So he at least is has been logically consistent this whole time. Yeah. I'd like to think that it's the overall uh, attitude of acceptance of the Federation yeah. and of Starfleet that allowed that to happen. Because clearly you can have a conversation with Data and he's very smart and he can fire the phasers. And so, yeah. you know, they convened that board and there was one guy that said, I don't think so, but everybody else was okay with it. And then it just sort of like got everybody kind of forgot about it until until now. It's like when you, I don't know, your roommate asks if he can like take a beer out of the fridge or your beer and you're like, fine. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, he's drinking all the beer and you're like, okay, maybe now there's got to be a, a reevaluation of this, this agreement. See, you have a, you have a more charitable take on it. I have the, <laughs> I have the, I have the more less charitable take was Starfleet was fine with it until he offered them the chance for like a legion of slave robots. And then until they were like, they, well, nah, yeah. suddenly our position changes, you know, fuck yeah. that. Like, yeah, that's uh, that's a more direct metaphor. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, well, you know, yeah, it was fine to treat him as officer when he was just a one off. But if you can make more than no, 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 he's ours oh, now. Somebody say slaves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I like that that we both came the same quest of, yeah, you know, you don't give you don't give the ship rank. You don't give everything else rank. So what was the point of all of that? <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, Data, you sort of force out of this. Data tries to, re when Data finds out he's been transferred, Data says, mm -mm, and resigns. And this is when Maddox has a more diva-ish hissy fit moment. See, it, right. again, I like, they play it, they play it very well. Maddox is in a room with uh, Our Lady Philippa, who is clearly 
he's some acronym, the JAG, which I don't know exactly what that means. Judge but clearly Advocate General, yeah. There you go. Perfect. So she resolves legal disputes this matter, and he's gone to her, to, and he has gone to her to say he's being thwarted, and that because his data is a machine and property, that he shouldn't be allowed to resign. He needs to do what I say. And yeah. he immediately is, he, he's, it's almost presaging a lot of internet arguments. He's sitting there. <laughs> clearly emotional going all of your arguments shouting very emotionally that all of their arguments are based on emotion and logic because they like data. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. He, but he's doing it incredibly emotionally because he's being stymied. So it's, you know, yeah. Again, the irony of that, I think, is lost upon him. I feel bad for her because in any other case, this would be like a form that you would submit or you would talk to somebody at a desk. But apparently, yeah. like, her staff hasn't arrived, which is believable. You live in a universe where everything is light years apart. So yeah. someday yeah, she'll, have, uh, she'll have a dozen people working for her. But at this point, she's just playing solitaire. And this angry scientist and, and angry Picard keep coming in. Yeah. And, like, angry um, scientist and angry, like, ex-boyfriend who you right. possibly, yeah. like, seriously betrayed although again you know this is the this is like what the advent of real technology sometimes breaks things it's like i don't know man couldn't you have done like a zoom court with this lady like surely you know surely surely you could have had a zoom call with your eventual staff from their respective shuttles right like yeah get a zoom lawyer in here i'm just yeah exactly come on i mean we're doing it we're doing it now in the 21st century anyways so why not get in there (laughs) they they couldn't have known yeah no of course not (laughs) but um so she uh basically she rules on the spot that okay uh no data is a, a date and again seems almost slightly malicious about it that data is a toaster screw him he needs to go which obviously picard has a problem with and challenges this and this is yeah. when we get into the uh this is when we, now again this is when we get into the debate but there's there's one more thing i have which is she says okay as ranking officers you know, ranking officers will need to uh, supply like the two positions that are being argued here as the highest ranking uh, Picard will be the defense. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that means Riker has to be like the prosecution. So, I mean, in any court, obviously that would be ridiculous because Riker's <laughs> yeah. personal investment in this, you know, would obviously he's be insane. totally compromised and conflicted. Yeah. 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 He's, and he says it. He's like, that's nuts. Of course I can. Yeah. But my question is, so you're telling me this important star base on the edge of like Romulan space to like show the flag and all that has no officers on it. Like no, <laughs> no, no one from the star base could fulfill this position. It had to be Riker. Yeah, it's a new Starbase. You know, the restaurant is open. We see that. But otherwise, yeah. it's just empty again, cabins. Again, it, it begs the question about Starfleet's priorities. If it's that close to the neutral zone, again, yeah, they got the <laughs> restaurant open. That's fine. But, yeah, yeah. you know, all the officers, uh, they'll get here eventually. Like, right, I'm sure right. if the Romulans attack, the fry cooks will be great, like, handling that, oh, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> they're, they're big guys. They can take care of it. Yeah, I actually exactly. – uh, I I hosted a live episode of my podcast at a convention, and we did a panel on this Mm -hmm. episode. And uh, one of the panelists was Melinda Snodgrass, the writer of the episode. Okay. 
Melinda was a lawyer before she became a screenwriter, and she used her experience with the law to craft the episode. And she asked Fantastic. a friend of hers who was in the military, and he yeah. confirmed that – I don't know if they still do this, but, yeah, they would do this. If you were at sea and you had to try something for some reason, the captain would be the uh, defender and the exo would be the prosecutor in the case. So there, there is legal precedent for it, no matter how crazy it seems. It makes sense, and I understand that, and that would make sense – and having Riker be forced to perform that, again, my problem is with it is having Riker forced to perform that role would make total sense if they were on the Enterprise somewhere else. Yeah. But if a ship is at port, <laughs> if a ship is yes. in port, they don't first force the first officer to still resolve that issue. They get the legal guys that are at the, that are at the port to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, but there's uh, there's nothing but, but the know, uh, I, new, new starbase smell in the legal offices because yeah, nobody's exactly. there. Again, if anything, this is just a maybe they shouldn't just they should, maybe they shouldn't be open. Maybe yeah, have the yeah, close yeah, sign up. An indictment on Starfleet's organization capabilities again. Yeah. That's all that is. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah, and obviously Riker is super pro- compromised, but he goes ahead and does it because now again, this was another legal, slightly legal issue I have. Picard has given a challenge to this, which is his right. Yes. Riker says, I'm compromised. I can't do this. And then she just says, well, then I summarily rule against it, which means she can override Picard's challenge. Yeah, apparently. I mean, he's it's he's the rules kind of work out weird because he's challenging. But then the only available counsel who is under his command is refusing but is obviously yeah. doing it because of his connection to picard and to the yeah. uh, to the um defendant yeah. and so she's gonna summarily rule yeah 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 it's it's interesting but anyways so they both decide to go and they put together their arguments for the debate and this is where we get into the entirety of as you say this this is the crux of the episode and this is the crux of the issue is is data a person or is he machine or yeah. rather not is he a person or is he a machine because we start with Riker's testimony, and Riker demonstrates extremely well that Data is a machine. Yeah, he does it. He does it very, very well. He takes he takes his hand off, and in the end, he he finds Data. Which again, Data should probably have this removed, but he finds Data's off switch and turns Data off. Yeah. Uh, so he very he he very very easily demonstrates that Data is a machine. Um, to the point where Picard is freaking out until he goes and has a great talk with Guinan and Guinan brings up the whole, which we've sort of touched on already, the whole slavery angle of essentially that's what they're gunning for. They're gunning for creating a slave race within the Federation. And yeah, right. Yeah. Picard realizes that the whole issue of whether or not data is a machine is, is irrelevant. All of it's irrelevant. It's all about the nature of person, the nature of consciousness, the nature of like what is and isn't a self-aware being. That's such a great scene. And it's such a great use of Guinan who yes. has some good parts in the show, but obviously they can't do much with her because she's not always going to be there. Cause she's Whoopi no. Goldberg. And Melinda Snodgrass told me that she had to write that scene in a couple hours because yeah. Guinan was not supposed to be in this episode, but as it worked out contractually and schedule wise, she was going to be. And so she had to whip up this scene. And for a scene that was written very quickly, it's a great. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And the fact that it, it's so deliberate, um, Guinan's dialogue is so deliberate in setting up subtly this idea of we're talking about, you know, property, we're talking about slaves. She uses the word value three times in succession, essentially. And then also, yeah. it's just a, a quirk of casting and chance, but having, you know, a, a black woman, Whoopi Goldberg, give that uh, speech as well, it just really drives it home. Yeah, exactly. It just adds that nail of oh yeah of course of course in the end this is what we're talking about like yeah, it isn't it isn't at all about whether he's a machine we know he's a machine we're talking about whether we own him or not and yeah, yeah. we don't and that's the point is whether we own him like not yeah. whether we own the computer it's whether we own him yeah exactly and that, i didn't know that that was written in a few hours that's extremely impressive then yeah yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's like wow okay <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, we get back and Picard has a fantastic argument. He brings up the three, you know, the three criteria. And this is really of, of intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. And he very, very easily demonstrates. Well, he doesn't demonstrate it. He demonstrates it with data a bit by just asking him sort of personal questions. But he brings up the same argument we both had. You know, why do you have a room? Like, what's the point of a thing full of metals? Slight phrase slightly differently. But why would data bother with that? Mm -hmm. uh, we we get the confirmation once again that uh, data and Tashiar got it on, which is, uh, you know, always worth always worth remembering. <laughs> right. uh, I like how Picard proves his point is not by interviewing data, but it's by interviewing uh, Bruce Maddox. Yes. Yes. And, and, yeah. Well, and also the fact that it, you know, it's it, it's about ownership. It's about property and and who can if if you can own someone, own this thing. You know, Lavoie in her closing statement or in her verdict um, says that she talks about the soul. You know, is Data alive? I don't know. Does he have a soul? I don't know. That's not what this court is here to decide ultimately. Yeah. Well, and. and I think the, probably the most intelligent thing, the most important thing she says is, does data, data have a soul? I don't know, but I don't know if I have a soul either. Sure, sure. You know, it's 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 it, because they're all going off. You know, Maddox is doing it too. He's going off the assumption that he's sentient and data's not. But all their assumptions on sentience are based on ephemerals. You know, whether he has a soul is immaterial because there's nothing yeah. that says that humans do. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the case of, well, in this specific case, you know, it becomes philosophy. Philosophy and, and law and regulation are crossing over here because at some point, you know, in their fictional future and possibly in our real future, we will have yeah. something that we do own, that we have a software that we have a patent on, a mainframe that we own. I know nobody says mainframe anymore, but a, a system that we own. And it will possibly be self-aware. And at what point do you are you unable to own something based on the values that we have in this country? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And like, again, the, the whole point of what Guinan says before and such is incredibly relevant. Again, we've already technically established that with people. But what's the if you can't determine what the basis of what is and isn't an intel or rather you can't parse the difference between what is and isn't an intelligent, like conscious self aware being, you've got yeah. to. You know, you have to rule based on the future assumption of what those things are going to think of, what you're supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, it's it's no surprise that the episode was based on the uh, Dred Scott decision. Um, yeah. 
the Dred Scott case, uh, where, of course, Dred Scott was a slave who was brought to free territories. And because of the Missouri Compromise at that time, any slave brought to uh, the North was automatically free. And so he sued that he should be free based on that. And he won initially. It was overturned and went back and forth until they brought it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that he was not uh, free, that he was a slave. And he actually ended up getting freed by a new owner a couple of years later. But yeah, the point is, is it was a really, that was like the, um, you know, the 10 seconds before the Civil War, basically one of the big things that caused the American Civil War. And I would never, I would hate to disagree with the writer of the episode, but I actually think that the trial in this episode is much more similar to the case of the United States versus um, the Amistad of, okay. of 1841. How's, how's if so? you've ever seen... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Amistad, uh, it dra dramatizes this whole affair. But the Amistad was a ship uh, that was owned by some Spanish guys. They stole a bunch of slaves from Africa. Uh, yeah. On their way to the New World, the slaves rebelled, freed themselves. But then they were captured and taken to an American court. And so all these different interests all wanted a piece of it. They wanted salvage from the ship. They, The Spanish guys wanted the slaves. The slaves wanted to be free. And ultimately, the case went to the United States Supreme Court court and the court ruled that they were not slaves not because they were you know by the uh, grace of god and all men uh equal to whites just because they were not uh bought as slaves properly they were not proper slaves so therefore they were not slaves they were not the property of the spanish guys and they could go yeah. back to africa and it wasn't it's that same thing where lavoie is not making some rule to be etched in the books of all time for you know what we respect uh, in terms of what is life it's just a technicality but even that technicality you know is gives it his freedom yeah, yeah it's important exactly. Well, yeah, that's you're right that that's that is a point that I brought up, which is, you know, Starfleet says that he's their property. But where 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 anywhere does it say that they own him? Where are the ownership papers? Where is any form of like transaction to say that they purchased him? From what yeah. I understand, I mean, they found him. From what, yeah, for, they found him soon yeah. from what I understand was not a part of the Federation. Like, no, no. so basically they're claiming rights of salvage on him. More they don't, yeah, they don't. If the episode was like another half an hour long, maybe they would have got into that. But it is kind of a, a salvage case. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Which is, you know, an interesting because. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's, there's, <laughs> there's a whole other thing. As you say, there's only so much time in the episode to get into that. Yeah, but that I, I was curious about that. It's like in what, you know, Starfleet's cleaning ownership. But in what legal standing do they have to say that they own him? Like basically yeah. they're saying because he signed up and now he's part of them, they own him. But that's that's a fucked legal precedent to take for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't important until he had perceived value. And then they're like, oh, uh, well, we own him. I mean, he's a thing, right? We own him. Yeah, so. exactly. Right. And I mean. Of, and then, you know, the very, of course, they couldn't foresee this, but then the very next series, you get like sort of a, another, like, they hadn't up until that point dealt with the idea of like synthetic races and such very much. But of course, yeah. like, in the very, then the, the next season, you get the Borg, which while not technically a synthetic race, start to explore that idea a lot more. And so, yeah, that would bring up a whole host of legal problems for them later about what is or isn't the legality of like, so are recovered Borg drones then Starfleet property as well? Like that, that, that brings all sorts of interesting legalese there. But, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. There's a lot going on in this episode. It's a great, there's, it's interesting because the the sort of the the, the generally understood like wisdom is that um, 
TNG really picks up sort of season three onwards. Yes. But this is one of my, this is, I feel is one of their absolute best episodes because there's so much, there's so much philosophy and thought going involved in what it is that they're talking about. Yeah. This is one of the, uh, Patrick Stewart has said that this is in his opinion, the first truly great TNG episode and yeah. the rest of season two will be a bit of a rough road, uh, especially yeah. as things going on behind the scenes of the production are kind of shaking themselves out. But yeah, this is the first time I think that the, the next generation proved that it wasn't a retread of TOS, that it could yes. use those older elements and ideas, but yet bring its own spin. Because in a lot of ways, this is a, re a, a repudiation of the um, the thing from Wrath of Khan, you know, the, the needs of the many outweigh the few. In this case, the needs of the one are more important than his possible benefit to Starfleet. The needs of the individual are, are supreme here, defending Correct. this one life, who by projection as Picard says in the episode, you know, could be a race or represents a race. But yeah, he is more important than the many in this. Yeah, exactly. He's yeah, yeah, yeah great. You're right. It's the exact inverse of like one of Spock's most famous aphorisms. Yeah, and, right. And he's kind of the Spock of this show. So, yeah, it's sort of like this is the sort of throwing the gauntlet down and saying, no, we're different. We can do more than just do what TOS did, tell different kind of stories. And it's funny yeah. because, you know, Data is like the first character like this in Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek throughout its history really doesn't talk much about artificial intelligence. And it, no, doesn't, it really, doesn't It doesn't delve into that very much. We have two shining examples, obviously, Data and the Doctor. But every robot or <laughs> android or whatever in the original series was just something to be destroyed or something that was trying to hurt them. And then, of course, we have a couple good Data stories. Uh, we've got the Exocomp story later in TNG. But I'm yeah. not sure really why. But the DNA of Trek doesn't seem to be that interested in examining that idea. Maybe it's because because it's about the human adventure, because it's about human aspiration and, you know, accepting um, diversity in these other cultures. But I think that, you know, one day we're going to have to ask this question of ourselves, aren't we? We're going to have to accept uh, or deny uh, personhood to intelligent machines and AI. Yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting that you're right, that there there are. There are individual cases of artificial intelligence within Trek, but there's no, there's nothing, there's no, there isn't a synthetic race, for instance, like there mm -hmm. is in many other mediums. There is nothing like that. I, I also, at least certainly in the earlier seasons, yeah, you wonder if it's, I don't know, you're right. There's so many, there's so many possible reasons why not. I, I think you're onto something there that it's about the individual artificial intelligence is great for humanist stories because it is a blank slate to put so many learning about like the human experience and like humanist experiences onto and yeah. the doctor and data are perfect about that a synthetic race is the exact opposite because they're, they're, they're not going to be doing what data or the doctor are doing and trying to learn how to become more human or anything if it's an entire yeah. synthetic species they couldn't give they probably couldn't give less of a shit about that uh and on the contrary they're they're the ultimate alien. They're, they're like an alien beyond anything else that's understandable as such. So yeah. are would be difficult to parse, especially in, if it's not, especially as anything other than an antagonist. Like even a semi-artificial intelligence like the Borg almost always show up as antagonists just mm -hmm. because they're so far beyond, I guess, 
even an audience's capacity of understanding. An audience can understand data. As you say, like his journey towards attempting to become more human is infinitely understandable. An entire synthetic race is going to just have priorities and thoughts and anything that are vastly different than anything that we ourselves could possibly get into. So, yeah, and th that is specifically explored in the uh, recent uh, Star Trek Picard, uh, where there's minor story spoilers, but there is yeah. an, a race of suing androids um, who are yearning to be free, but also sort of have their, their own agenda. And I just think it comes from, you know, the, the original Star Trek, the um, ancient Star Trek uh, is, you know, was based on, you know, the pulp sci-fi and that sort yeah. of thing where, you know, you were, we weren't really looking at artificial intelligence, robots, you know, were bad, they were trying to take over, um, and it just didn't really change. You know, if you look at uh, Data, he's got a positronic brain, that's obviously a reference to Isaac Asimov's robot stories, mm -hmm. and I think that a big inspiration for Data was that. But even in those stories, especially early on in the Asimov stories, he wasn't interested in really depicting the robots as a race, supposedly. No. Like, he was just looking at, uh, or them having rights. You know, he was interested in, like, the developing psychology of robots. That is a mind created by and for humans, primarily as tools for humanity. Uh, he, he would explore the way that human, humanity would treat robots, for certainly. Um, but yeah, it was nothing to the... I mean, Data's like, he passes the duck test, doesn't he? He walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, has got feathers. Like he's, yeah. We know that he's sentient as the audience. And so that's, yeah. why, uh, that's why Maddox is such a good villain in this case. Yeah, because it's, it's immediately apparent to us that his line yeah, of reasoning is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. A bit of a digression, but just you bringing up Picard made me think about it. We just, I just had an episode, um, a few, uh, I think that the one that just, well, I, when we're recording this, the one that just released, um, Ma, uh, I did an episode on Mass Effect. Oh, and yeah. I don't, I don't know if you ever played Mass Effect. Yes, I have. Yeah. So, so I feel that the writers of Picard must have played Mass Effect because the whole end game where essentially one race of synthetics is essentially summoning like some kind of elder god race of synthetics to come and destroy all organics was right. strikingly similar to the plot of Mass Effect. Yeah, what's really weird is that in the second season of Discovery, there is a subplot where there were these like squid-like aliens from the future, a future that uh, where all organic life had been destroyed because of the rise of synthetic intelligence. So yeah. I saw that, and then a year later, I saw Star Trek Picard, and I'm like, these guys are playing some video games here. Oh yeah, these guys are. I mean, I mean, you know, let's all be honest about who we all are. We're doing. Uh, like episodes of Star Trek as a podcast, who plays the video games? There, yeah. it's a bunch of writers for science fiction shows. For damn sure, they're playing the video games. Yeah, and they're definitely yeah. playing Mass Effect. And it's funny how we talked about like shows like Battlestar, you know, and later shows that came after Trek being influenced yeah. by that because, of course, they watch that. And it's just such a 21st century thing that now TV writers are like looking to what are the uh, the important, the moving, uh, creative stories in sci-fi right now. Well. Sure, they exist on TV and in literature, but they're also totally in video games. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to do an episode on Mass Effect, because it's like, you know, you, you're going to talk about science fiction stories. The thing has more plot crammed into it than like you could get out of three seasons of television. Right. That's that's the yeah. interest of the meat. That's the interesting part of that particular medium is, again, another nature of being able to tell ridiculously long stories. But Anyhow, listeners, if you haven't, go back and listen to the uh, Mass Effect episode, and uh, we talk a lot about that. <laughs> Have uh, you done Halo? 
I haven't gotten to Halo yet because it was artificial intelligence and there's uh, I haven't played past Halo three. So there wasn't much aside okay. from Cortana. We could I could have yeah. talked about Cortana, but uh, I, I yeah, haven't there, gotten there yet. Yeah, I, I felt but, like Mass Effect was better in terms of like a story, a, a podcast about storytelling, because there's there is a lot more storytelling going on in Mass Effect than there is in Halo. In the game, yeah, but there's like 60 Halo novels or something like that where they ex- yeah. you know, just expand the entire universe. Yeah, that's just a bridge too far for me, though. Right? <laughs> I, I totally understand. I, I, I have limited I'm, amounts of time in my life. I don't think yeah. books about Halo are ever going to feature in them. <laughs> yeah, put it on screen. Let me shoot it. That's how I'll yeah. a- absorb it. Yeah, precisely. If I can stick plasma grenades on it, I'll spend a few <laughs> hours. But if I have to read about other people sticking plasma grenades on it, absolutely not. Not quite so fun. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> and yeah so it's i guess I, I in terms of like talking about ai i like this episode because it's a discussion about what makes ai ai what makes data an artificial intelligence as opposed to just a machine and it's it's a set of metrics that can be applied to sort of any artificial intelligence and their idea of yeah that this is how we're going to have to treat thinking about the Federation as a unit, as a society is going to have to come up with some way of dealing with this. And I like that they, they come up, at least they have an initial thought of, yeah, you know, we're, this is going to have to be more than just, we own this. Now they come to the right decision in the end, which is good. Yeah. I think that we, as a people like us on earth, will have to one day, we're going to have to make some decision about this. Probably not anytime soon. Um, but I, what I like about the episode is, you know, obviously how well it's written, and we haven't even mentioned the acting, which is which is just great. great. Across the but, board, it's great. Yeah, it really is. But I love the fact that, you know, we talked about how even though Star Trek doesn't often do these kinds of stories about finding artificial life, this episode still in the final moments brings it back to the star trek idea of exploration and contact and learning you know in yeah. picard's closing argument he talks about the great line yeah uh, talking about looking for new life and and there it sits and he yeah. makes the point that we will be judged by how we treat this new race of people and i have hope for, well, I mean, you have to watch Picard to find out what happens, I guess. But I have hope yeah. for their universe. I don't mean to be cynical, but I wonder about ours sometimes. Oh, because... I, I, I agree with whatever. <laughs> however cynical you want to get, I agree with it. 100%. Okay, because we're, we're already Im- implementing, you know, what they call weak or narrow AI. Um, you know, Siri doesn't think. Siri's not self-aware. I don't think we need no. to have a trial about that. But no. one day we'll be find ourselves in a similar position and we're starting from a position of value. You know, this isn't something that we just found on Omicron Theta. You know, we are developing, Google's developing these things. Uh, they're developing uh, what could possibly one day be an intelligence and it will already be owned. So it will be a tougher battle, I think, for that that young form of life. Yeah, I don't foresee our corporate overlords having nearly as much of a humanist standpoint on that particular <laughs> issue. Yeah, I don't think so. Especially if they make it themselves. Yeah, yeah. They'll already have but the my, papers. Yeah. I mean, my hope, though, is that surely at least by now those idiots have all watched, like, Terminator 2 and know not to be <laughs> so completely belligerent to whatever it is that they create, right? Like, you would I, think. Yeah, you would think. Although Terminator 2 is the one where they can beat it, though, right? Well, yes, but it's also what demonstrates why it happened in the first place. That's like, true. They're, yeah. they're still Four learning. It. I mean, yeah, <laughs> eat it technically. I mean, yeah, sure. Then they have to come up with time travel and maybe that's what they'll do. But there's easier ways of dealing up. with 
Surely <laughs> it's just treat your AI better to begin with rather than build a time machine to eventually defeat the yeah. AI, which you know you're going to mistreat now. That's like, that's that's Roko's ba- Basilisk, right? Yeah. Yeah, Roko's Basilisk, the idea that, you know, on a long enough timeline, an AI will exist, and on a long enough timeline, that AI will have the ability, assuming it has access to the internet and so on and so forth, to know pretty much everything about anybody, and it'll be able to find the people who spoke against it or tried to keep it from coming into reality and find a way to recreate you and punish you in a Harlan Ellison-style scenario. So, yeah, say good things about the AI. I, for one, welcome our AI overlords. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening, AI, you heard it here. We're all for it. You know. Yep, yep. Great episode. Great AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all we're exactly. on board. <laughs> we're, we're totally on board. <laughs> there you go. We future-proofed ourselves. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Basilisk free. Well, excellent. So yeah, that's a great overview of this episode. Like I said I love this episode. It's a truly great. It's a great episode of TNG for now. Listeners, if by some chance you've just listened to all this and you haven't seen the episode, A, my God, you're bored. I mean, you know, there's got to be something you do because you need to see this episode before you listen to this. That's ridiculous. Go and watch this episode right now, please. It's 100% worth it. it, I was going to say it's a great introduction to, to TNG. It may not be a great introduction to TNG, actually, but because like there's a lot of i don't know would you qualify it as a good introduction to tng or no i think just i think the it's so good that it sucks you in and so i think that if you even if you didn't know anything uh, about star trek other than i get it they i get it they're on a star trek they're got a ship and stuff like that yeah. um, i think that you it would still work for you but it is true that knowing those characters uh, definitely helps you connect more to the threat here of losing data and what Picard is going through, even what Riker is going through, having to argue yeah. against his friend's life. So, yeah, I mean, like if anybody is looking to get into TNG, this is a great one. Um, if you're going to skip around in season two, definitely do this. If you watch this and continue into season two, I can't be responsible for some of the things that happen in season two. But otherwise, yeah, yeah this is a great yeah, it, early it, episode it, of, uh, of TNG. It's not going to hurt you to like plow through season two, get to this episode, then, you know, maybe just uh, wait until you can see Dr. Crusher again. You know, that'll be yeah. a, might be a safe bet. Yeah. But don't do the host. The first episode of season three. That's <laughs> true. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much for joining me to discuss this episode. That's uh, that was fantastic. I, I loved Yeah. Great episode. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So where where can uh, where can my listeners go to find you? To well, if you want to hear more of an erudite gentleman who, as you say, clearly understands, clearly knows far more about uh, TNG than I do. Where do they go to find you? You can find the you, is it not the host? Is it, it's the child? I can't remember what that episode's called. Doesn't matter. Uh, you can find enterprising individuals on Twitter at at e i s t p o d, and that's where I share Star Trek stuff. Also post new episodes, and you can find the show Enterprising Individuals on any listening platform that you use. Excellent. And as always, listeners, if uh, you enjoyed what you heard, please head on over and. Uh, you know, give us a rating as uh, I'll 
to borrow the phrase that Aaron just used, wherever, uh, whatever podcasting medium that you like to use, head us a rate. That would be great. And uh, yeah, you can always go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at RocketmanTFGC. And thank you very much, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed your drinks. Uh, Chris is going to be coming on next week to come up with another great beverage for us. Thank you as always. And we'll see you guys next week. Aaron, thank you very much again. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, guys. Let me ask you something. Do you watch wrestling? Either way, I have a podcast I want you to check out. Smart and Friends is the wrestling podcast that's not just for wrestling fans. Sometimes we watch wrestling with content creators or emerging artists who don't watch wrestling. Other times we'll invite a wrestler to talk about their interesting projects outside the squared circle. Or maybe we'll do something else entirely, as long as we think wrestling fans and people outside of our fandom will get a kick out of it. Catch Smart and Friends from the Two Finger Guns Club wherever you catch your podcasts. This has been a Two Finger Guns Club production. Pew, pew.